0: Hello, Vitality Explorers. Dr. Alan Mishra here with you again on the Vitality Explorer News Podcast. Our mission, our purpose, our goal is to enhance global vitality one person at a time. So we always like to start with a quote, and this is from Herman Melville, Moby Dick, author of Moby Dick, and here's his quote. Quote, we cannot live only for ourselves. A thousand fibers connect us. We cannot live only for ourselves a thousand fibers connect us. So in this week's edition of the Vitality Explorer News Podcast, we are gonna talk about three things like we typically do. Number one, can a candy bar boost your brain? Number two is vitamin D, the sun-kissed solution for rotator cuff tears. And the final one, maybe the most important one, loneliness is the new silent killer, all right? I'd also like to tease you a little bit, we're gonna do something starting soon called Vitality Now, which will be an online opportunity for people to connect and learn more about the latest and greatest information about how to enhance your physical, mental, social, and or spiritual well-being. And you can find the references for all these posts on the Vitality Explorer News Substack site. You can also join VitalityExplorers.com to receive a free text message newsletter once a week onto your phone. So let's jump into, uh, can a candy bar boost your brain? All right, very interesting potential value here. And the answer about that one is if it contains dark chocolate, it may be valuable for your cognitive function. And part of it is because chocolate contains bioactive compounds called flavonoids. And uh, these are known as antioxidants. And that's one of the reasons why it could help boost your brain power. But we're going to look at two Different published papers, and again, we like to use scientific evidence whenever possible to back up whatever we're recommending on Vitality Explorer News. And the first paper is The Effects of Chocolate on Cognitive Function in Healthy Adults: a systematic review and meta-analysis on clinical trials. So here's two of the two of the conclusions from that paper. Quote consumption of dark chocolate may be beneficial on health including the cardiovascular system cognitive function and cholesterol reduction reduction excuse me second quote base quote based on current meta-analyses results regular chocolate consumption has been related to some dimensions of cognitive performance including executive function time language and uh, executive function overall unquote so that's pretty interesting and awesome news if, if you're a chocolate lover, right? So regular consumption of, of chocolate may be valuable. Let's dive into some of the details because I think we, we learn when we learn more about the specifics of this study. And this one looked at healthy adults between the ages of 18 and 75. There were 546. The average age was 5953 And the consumption in this particular study was about 30 grams, which is about one ounce per day for 30 straight days. The researchers were mainly interested in whether or not the the chocolate, eating chocolate, could help cognitive function. And here are the two primary findings that were statistically significant. And this is kind of interesting. Chocolate consumption reduced executive function time. So that basically means you're thinking faster, right? And the second one, language and executive function was raised 6.38 times after the intervention. That was highly statistically significant. So fascinating, right? I mean, I, I don't know we should eat an entire chocolate bar, but it sounds like consuming an ounce a day might of dark chocolate might be a reasonable thing. And here's a couple more quotes from that particular paper before we go on to the second one. And quote, cocoa flavonoids, remember those are antioxidants, act as neuroprotectors and neuromodulators. They display positive effects on cognitive function in young adults. The the chronic intake of cocoa has a beneficial effect uh, effect on some dimensions of cognitive function. And quote, overall daily consumption of cocoa may provide short and medium term effects on, on young adults and make than better cognitive performance and learning, memory and attention. Wow, sounds like a super drug, right? So if you're into that, I think that that particular study it provides reasonably good evidence to suggest that you're you can think better by eating some chocolate. The second one was was fascinating in that uh, this this paper um, looked at 104 people and randomized them to eating five pieces of dark chocolate, 72% dark chocolate, per day or a control, control group for 28 days. And this is the title of the paper. Dark chocolate intake may reduce fatigue and uh, mediate cognitive function and gray matter volume in healthy middle-aged adults. So the primary finding was a reduction in the physical and mental fatigue. And you can look at the charts on the Vitality Explorer and use Substack site if you want to. Um, but the study concluded that dark chocolate intake may help reduce the fatigue of individuals and would lead to improvement in brain health and various cognitive functions, as well as quality of life. And this is the quote that I love from this paper. The study also found that fatigue reduction led to strengthening of vitality. So I think these two papers taken together can be be, uh, evidence to suggest that moderate dark chocolate consumption is a vitality enhancer. That's awesome news, again, for anybody who likes a little bit of dark chocolate, which, excuse me, I might like to do once in a while. Uh, It sounds like I should be eating an ounce a day in the appropriate amount. Um, And I think it's something we can also think about. The second paper was pretty interesting in that They had some other findings about the overall gray matter and here's another quote from the abstract quote we found that dark chocolate reduced mental and physical fatigue and a path analysis revealed that it enhanced vitality executive function memory gray matter volume both directly and indirectly wow i mean that's just pretty fascinating research i encourage you to look at the references the graphs on the vitality explorer news substack site and, um, if you like it and if it's okay for your other, otherwise health, check with your doctor, but maybe having a little chocolate every day would be a great way to enhance your overall brain function and vitality. Uh, let's jump on to the second one we're going to talk about today. And that is, is vitamin D the sun kissed solution for rotator cuff tears? Now rotator cuff tears are something that I've taken care of thousands of them over many, many years and operated on a a ton of patients who have this particular problem. But one of the things that's emerged in the last four to five years is the interaction of low vitamin D with rotator cuff injuries. Now we know vitamin D has been classically associated with like, you know, osteoporosis or low bone density, but there's emerging evidence. And this is so, this is right on what I'm doing research-wise in my Uh, my clinic and my lab and and things like that, is just trying to understand how can rotator cuff injuries be associated with vitamin D. And the reason why this is is really important is that perhaps five, 10, 20, 50 people listening to this have a shoulder or rotator cuff problem. It's very common. Two million people uh, per year visit a doctor to address rotator cuff tears and injuries. And this results in massive healthcare costs. Now, surgery is not indicated for every rotator cuff injury or tear. It's typically reserved for acute large tears or when patients fail all other non-operative treatments. But the cost of surgical intervention really skyrockets if the patient needs a second operation or a revision operation. So it's really, really important to optimize patients whenever possible. And that is why we're going to talk about this paper called Preoperative Vitamin D Supplementation is a Cost-Effective Intervention in Arthroscopic Rotator Cuff repair. So this is something that's important for my practice, but I think it's also important for anybody who might have a shoulder or rotator cuff issue. And here's a quote from the paper. In an arthroscopic rotator cuff repair, the interest in vitamin D deficiency as a modifiable factor stems from the relatively high rate of vitamin D deficiency in the general population. And because supplementation appears to be a low risk, highly reliable, and potentially cost-effective therapy to enhance post-operative recovery, and reduce costly revision rotator cuff repair rates. So we're looking for things. This is a something that's right in the middle of what I do almost every day in the office. And that is see people who have this particular problem. So if I'm contemplating operating on somebody for a rotator cuff injury, I definitely get a pre-operative vitamin D level because it's a modifiable, um, uh, risk factor. So I found this paper personally and professionally fat satisfying and fascinating because there's several hundred thousand rotator cuff surgeries per year in the United States, and that's rising with the aging of the population. But this paper found that selective vitamin D screening, meaning, m- meaning uh, screening and then supplementation of people who are low, could result in a $6.1 million savings, and that non-selective um, just sort of uh, supplementation could result in in a savings of eleven point six million dollars. There's a pretty cool graph on the Vitality Explorer new Substack site that you can look at, um, but the paper concluded that vitamin D is a cost-effective mechanism to reduce revision surgeries and overall healthcare costs. There was another paper that was just presented, not not published, but I went down this rabbit hole of trying to understand what is the latest research on vitamin D and rotator cuff injuries, because this is something I do all the time. Um, And I found this paper called Serum Vitamin D correlates with rotator cuff muscle uh, and vitamin D muscle performance before and after rotator cuff repair. If you want to, by the way, if you want to see what a, a shoulder arthroscopy looks like and how that works with rotator cuff repairs, you can look on the Vitality Explorer and use Substack site, and there's a video of me, me performing a, a rotator, a shoulder arthroscopy, just a brief video, so you kind of get the idea if you are not squeamish. Okay, this other paper about vitamin D levels within patients' muscle tissue found that, quote, supplementation of vitamin D to patients with low serum vitamin D would enhance rotator cuff muscle performance before and after repair. So that's really fascinating, right? So we've again, we thought of vitamin D as something that's related to our bone. We have emerging evidence, at least in rotator cuff issues, that it's related to not just your tendon, but also your muscle. So I think we need to reject the hypothesis that vitamin D is only associated with bone and continue to explore the value of optimizing your vitamin D for, for things like muscle and or tendon injuries like rotator cuff injuries because it's a modifiable risk factor. And so why wouldn't we why wouldn't we try to optimize that? And I think the unanswered question is whether vitamin D supplementation can help treat things like partial rotator cuff tears or help avoid progression to full thickness rotator cuff or potentially having patients avoid surgery? That's a much more difficult question to answer. We don't have that answer to my knowledge yet. If you are an expert in vitamin D, or if you have some other data that you'd like to uh, post about, please leave that on the Vitality Explorer News Substack site. Again, this is not medical advice. Always check with your personal physician prior to initiating any treatment or procedure. Also consider becoming a paid subscriber to Vitality Explorer News to gain access to over 300 scientific posts uh, about how to enhance your physical, mental, social, and or spiritual well-being. And those things include um, poker lessons, (laughs) uh, electrocating cancer and red bull longevity, which is what we talked about last week. There's also another post on the Vitality Explorer site site that you can find called healthy shoulders at any age, which goes over a variety of injuries, disorders, and prevention tips, uh, for a variety of different shoulder problems. We're going to finish this week's Vitality Explorer news, uh, podcast with something that's really, really important. And that the title of this post, which you can find online, is called Loneliness is the New Silent Killer. So loneliness and social isolation are really crucial problems, especially after COVID. Uh, And during COVID, it was unbelievably uh, bad. It was even bad prior to COVID. COVID exacerbated it. And now we're coming out of it and we need to really explore this in detail because loneliness and social isolation are terrible. I had to look this up because I just wasn't sure what the difference between these two are. So this is some definitions that I I have references for. But loneliness is, quote, the discrepancy between a person's preferred and actual level of social contact. So that's a subjective and qualitative measurement of our connectedness. But loneliness is something we feel. So you can be around a whole bunch of other people and still be lonely because you may not have enough social contact or enough deepness of that meaningful social contact. Social isolation, however, is a little more um, of quote, an objective state of having minimal social contact with other individuals. And social isolation has uh, been measured by evaluating parameters such as marital status, whether you're living alone or with somebody, religious service, attendance, group memberships, and frequency of contact with friends, family, and colleagues. So those are more objective. Social isolation really does mean you're not connected at all to other people Whereas loneliness could be, you could be, in the, again, in the middle of a whole bunch of people, but still feel, feel lonely because there's a dis- disconnect between your preferred and actual level of social connectedness. So these two issues of loneliness and social isolation were evaluated in a newly published article that looked at 90 different studies and included over 2.2 million people. And this paper was called A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of 90 Cohort Studies of Social Isolation, Loneliness, and Mortality. Um, And here is the primary conclusion of the paper. Quote, social relationships are essential to human well-being and play a vital role in the maintenance of health. Now, this, th- I think we kind of know that, but I think the specific major findings in this investigation will hopefully help us be actionable about this problem. So social isolation increased all-cause mortality by 32%. So, so that means all reasons for, for potentially dying, 30, 32% increase if you're socially isolated. Loneliness increased by 14%. Social isolation also increased the, the risk of dying of cardiovascular disease by 28% and 33% in patients in breast cancer patients. So think about that. This isn't a drug. This is not a, you know, a surgery or radiation, but if you have breast cancer or if you have cardiovascular disease, you have about a one third increased risk of literally dying if you are socially isolated. So um, I think, what this paper also helped me realize is that this is not just psychological. There's some physiologic mechanisms underlying why social isolation and loneliness increase the risk of dying. And here, here's how it goes. We're actually going to slow down a little bit. But the mechanisms underlying this, these findings include a portion of your brain called the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access. So that's why we call it the HPA access, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access. So this is in your brain and then going to to something called your adrenal glands, which are just above your kidneys. Uh, But this set of pathways gets activated when we're isolated or lonely and leads to the release of cortisol. And you might have heard of cortisol because it's a stress hormone. So human studies have found that socially isolated people have a higher overall cortisol output during the day. All right. So if you're socially isolated, it's it's a form of stress. Lonely people also have increases in their morning cortisol levels that are related to the overactivity of this HPA axis, the hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis, the HPA axis. And continuous activation of that pathway can lead to a variety of challenges that increase our blood glucose, um, affect our inflammatory cells and even our uh, reproductive organs or the hormones associated with our reproductive organs. So social isolation and loneliness is not just associated with this increased level of cortisol or physiologic functions that we, we may, you know, may be familiar with, but it's also associated with terrible things like poor mental health, higher rates of depression and dementia. So people who are either lonely or isolated, um, are are also at higher risk for engaging in destructive behaviors such as excessive drinking, smoking, or lower levels of exercise. And what's what's really important is that having a smaller social network can lead to people not engaging in the healthcare system. So they're lonely, they're isolated, and then they just don't engage. And that leads to later diagnoses that can make it more difficult to treat or exacerbate the outcome. So this is super important. And I know we've talked about this before on Vitality Explorer News, but I think the data uh, with this new meta analysis paper of over 2.2 million people just locks it down. Um, and loneliness and social isolation are flat out terrible for your vitality. And we are way overdue to correct course and emphasize our social wellness in the context of our overall wellness. So we've talked about this hundred second challenge before, but do it today. Text three people you haven't talked to in a while. Just say hello. Don't ask for a favor. Don't ask for something. Just say you're thinking about them and say, you know, Hey, how you doing? What's going on? This will boost their vitality and yours as well. And also understand that working on your social well-being is something you should prioritize. I mean, my God, we don't—we shouldn't have to tell ourselves that, but um, we sometimes put that at the bottom of the priority list to connect up with a friend or a family member for a walk, a meal, or something that's just fun for fun's sake. But I think working on our existing and future relationship are so important that we should—we should literally work on them as if our life depends upon it. Because it does. The data we we just talked about is powerful evidence to suggest that you're literally at a higher risk of dying by almost a third if you are socially isolated. So um, think about that today. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of the vitality explorer news podcast we've talked about how a candy bar can boost your brain power we've looked at vitamin d as a sun-kissed solution for rotator cuff tears and then we finished with loneliness as the new silent killer Uh, Please consider becoming a paid uh, subscriber to Vitality Explorer News online at the Substack site to gain access to over 300 scientific posts and podcasts about your vitality. And then I'm going to tease you with something we're going to begin soon, and that's called Vitality Now, which is going to be a live interactive webinar where you can sign up for that uh, and we will discuss the most important articles, uh, likely once a month or every other month, where we're looking at what are the most, most specific and actionable things uh, based on science that you can do to improve your well-being. And it'll be an interactive discussion online. So thank you for listening to this week's edition of the Vitality Explorer News podcast. Um, I, I again will remind you of Herman Melville's quote of we quote, we cannot live only for ourselves. A thousand fibers connect us. So get out there and connect some of those fibers today. And until next time, get out and enjoy your world and dare to be vital.